The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, a simple question. If yields continue to rise, can stops keep from falling? The answer matters to your money more than ever right now, and our investment committee discusses and debates that key question today. Joining me for the hour, Bryn Talkington, Rob Seachin, Steve Weiss, Jim Labenthal, and Joe Terranova. Let's start you off by checking the markets, give you the up-to-the-moment trades right now. Rates, you can see they are higher today, touching 180. That's a pre-COVID high for the 10-year note yield. Dow right now down triple fours, 444. S&P's off by nearly 1.5%. And there is the NASDAQ, the center of it all, down 270, coming off its worst week in nearly a year, down more than 4.5% last week alone. We see it is falling yet again. Jim Labenthal, we had a lot of technical damage. The 100, the NASDAQ is, is below its 50 and its 100 day. The composite itself, the 50 and the 100 and the 200 have been breached. And you think... And you told our producers, these were your words, this is not even close to a bottom. Yeah, well, first off, I mean, doesn't this feel heavy? And I'm asking that rhetorically. This market feels heavy. And it's overdue. You know, I I've talked about volatility a few times, and I want to make a distinction here. When I talk about volatility, I'm not talking about VIX. I'm talking about the peak to trough decline in a market. And the last 19 months, you haven't had greater than a 5% decline uh, in the S&P 500. Excuse me, numbers were slightly off there. The last 14 months. It's been 19 months since the S&P 500 hit its 200-day moving average. Now, you pointed out the NASDAQ numbers, Scott, and yes, the NASDAQ is starting to show technical signs of a full-on correction. I think the S&P 500 is not far behind. And one might say, like I do, well, okay, the value stocks are going to hold up, right? Energy is going to hold up because crude prices are high. Financials are going to hold up because interest rates are high. But when 30% of the S&P 500 is in the top 10 names, and those names are all tech or tech-like, you can't expect the S&P 500 to hold in there. So on Friday, I was on with you, and I said, I think you're going to get a full correction uh, this quarter in the S&P 500. That is mainly because the Fed has, has really slowed down the amount of cash that they're putting into the system. So you can expect normal volatility, i.e. a 10% plus peak to trough decline in the S&P 500 this quarter. There has been a massive re-rating in multiples, particularly in large, um, in those high-flying tech stocks. The high multiple is what I wanted to say, technology names. And if you remember, Brad Gerstner at Delivering Alpha this past fall was telling us that the 10-year was going to go back to pre-COVID levels, which it now is today. January 2020 is where the 10-year was last at this level and that multiples in those stocks would would need to compress by some 30 to 40 percent. He also said in December when he was last on this program that he was starting to nibble on stocks because multiples 
have come in so much. Well, new at noon, um, I traded some text with him today, and he's uh, since tweeting about it now. He says we could still be about 10 to 15 percent more to go on multiple compression for tech that Omicron simply postponed the continued re-rating of those multiples uh, for some 30 to 45 days. He said, given the Fed's sloppiness, there's now a risk of retesting November of 2018 multiples. And that was the last time that markets really worried about a Fed policy misstep. Not his base case, not his base case, what he says, but definitely on the table in the short run. And you can see his Twitter feed, which in the last few minutes has picked up with some more thoughts of his on where the market is. Uh, but Steve Weiss, what do you make of what Gerstner's saying? Uh, he's been largely right on calling for a re-rating of multiples that the Nasdaq had to come in as a result, and then it's probably not finished. Look, Brad, uh, you know, who I know fairly well, uh, is generally right. And he's not one of those tech investors that does invest in these high multiple stocks who believes that it's always green shoots and it's panacea and nothing can go wrong. But there's a surprise to the market. And the market, it's almost comical in a way that the market believes that momentum can only help you on the upside and not on the downside, that it doesn't occur. So what we are seeing is that re-rating specifically. We're seeing multiple contraction and we're seeing even worse on stocks that have no multiples, so to speak. So, look, I think continues. I came into today, and because unlike the other panelists, I can actually short stocks, uh, I came in net 50% long today, short the Qs, short the SMH. I covered half those positions. I was short ARKK. I covered all that just because it's so heavily shorted. You can get a very violent bounce. I'm still short TLT. I haven't covered any of that. Uh, although I may cover a little because we start to see the, the rise in rates peter out a little bit today, but I'm not covering all of it. So look, to me, the market has not been through enough yet. Now, we can get bounces along the way, but you still can't justify valuations. And so the justification we've had where valuation didn't matter and where fundamentals didn't matter in terms of the valuation, now they're going to start to matter. And what really hit it today is that you had analysts or strategists or economists come out, and I've been very hawkish, as you recall, maybe the most hawkish around, that now it's not enough for them to catch up and say, okay, I'm going to be consensus. Now they come out and say, the Fed's going to go four times. The Fed's actually going to even have quantitative tightening next year. So you need to see a little bit more of that because nobody mm -hmm. just wants to say, yeah, I agree with you. They say, I agree, but I'm going to go one better because I'm smarter than you. And that's the stage that we're well, in now. You so know, when you get enough of that through, you're, you're talking, you see the market bottom. You're, you're talking about, that. that's the Goldman call today that you're going to get for um, rate increases this year. And that's not trying to, you know, be the smartest person on the street, be the smartest person in the room or wise no, one up anybody. I mean, the, the, the Fed funds futures markets are almost now predicting for you're up to, I don't know, the end of the, of the end of 22. When we talked to Leesman last week was up to 50 percent. So the market is, is quickly moving in that direction. Bryn, let, let me go to you here, because right. look, you're you're a noted investor uh, in the ARC funds, okay? They continue to get obliterated. Kathy Wood was holding a call this morning in which she said the selling was, I think she used the word irrational, and said that you're going to see the turn soon. Well, you heard what Brad Gerstner told me earlier today about multiples needing to come in even more, 
perhaps by double digits more. What do you think of Gerstner's call and what Kathy Wood is telling her investors on a call? First of all, I think the the Fed giveth and the Fed taketh away. And so I think that until we have clarity on this balance sheet reduction, which really threw the market for a loop, and I think when those Fed minutes came out and they had talked about in those minutes about actually reducing the size of the balance sheet, that's when rates spiked. And I think that's really when you saw those high growth names, of which most of those, a lot of those names are in ARC, really that selling intensified. And I think if you go back, you know, and look at, you know, 1999 in those years where these like bubbles burst, I mean, you saw a full mean reversion back then, right? So you saw Amazon go from six to 113, uh, back down to six, right? So I was invested in that time period. So I'm always aware of what happened then. I don't think you're going to get that type of full mean reversion. But I think Brad is, I think Brad is spot on. I think that the markets could easily overcorrect. And I think that what hasn't gotten enough play is a lot of people have been talking about growth versus value, but really where the big disparity has been small cap growth versus large cap growth. And as of Friday, 40% of the names in the NASDAQ, not the NASDAQ 100, but the NASDAQ, were down 50% or more, while the generals, you know, the big names, are barely off their all-time high. That doesn't bode well for the market. And I do think you could still see weakness in the larger cap tech names to more playing a little bit of correlation with those small cap growth names, which to Jim's point, which I agree with, could easily put pressure on the S&P. So I think that it's always impossible to call it call a market bottom. I think Kathy would like it to be a bottom, but I do think that markets overcorrect. And I think you could see 10 to 15 percent more downside on these high growth names. But really, that's going to be path dependent, Scott on what the Fed's narrative is. If the Fed really wants to tighten the balance sheet, I think that's, I mean, reduce the balance sheet. I think that's going to be, you know, risk off in general for the whole market. Joe, the the big variable, it seems to me, and Gerstner alludes to it, and it is the great unknown. um, It's the sloppiness is the word he used to describe uh, the Fed and and a policy error that is now the risk that could, you know, fears of that that could bring multiples in even more. I mean, you can make a credible argument, Joe, that the Fed already had a policy error. By leaving policy too easy for too long, they swung and missed big time on getting inflation right to the point where they had to back off transitory finally after so many times, right? And now they're forced to chase their tail because now they got to worry about inflation that they helped stoke and they've now spooked the stock market and now they got a real problem on their hands. And the market doesn't know what to make of the whole thing because rates now continue to rise more than 30 basis points in six days. And tech valuations continue to come down. I mentioned the technical damage that the Nasdaq has done. And now there are calls by Gerstner and others that said, no, it's not done yet. Multiples need to come in even more to get back to normalization. Okay. So the the way that I see this is to try and help the viewers, because I think people right now are in trouble. People are concerned exactly about what you just communicated. Let me, let me acknowledge this off the top, all right? Jimmy has been spot-on correct, so his view is the one that, that, that is highlighted to me now. So far, year-to-date, the picks that I've made have been absolutely awful. But for the viewers, I think you've got a chance here 
to potentially pare back some of your risk in the coming days or maybe the coming week. And it comes along with exactly what Brad Gerstner is talking about, the sloppiness of the Federal Reserve. Well, Chairman Powell gets a chance, Scott, to kind of clean up that sloppiness tomorrow in front of the Senate. So I see the market right now. I see hedge funds. I see institutional money as being heavily short. There is the potential over the next day or so in the coming week where the market gets a short covering rally because the chairman cleans up some of the sloppiness that we've talked about in the policy. And you're also going to have the expectation of earnings coming out. So I think the market wants to maybe have a lift and get some short covering ahead of that as well. But that's going to be your opportunity to take off risk. I think we're in a, we've got this paradigm shift where rallies are to be sold. So my gut's telling me we're very close and I'm playing it uh, accordingly in the NASDAQ futures market from the long side. I think you've got the potential here for a little bit of a short covering rally. That's nothing more than a trade. And make sure you're able on the other side of that to take off some risk. I feel like that's false hope, Joe, because the Fed chair had his chance. It was a two-day appearance yep. on Capitol Hill. Day one is when he spooked the market. Yep. Day two, he didn't walk it back. And he's had chances since yep. then, and so have other Fed officials, to talk the market back to feeling some semblance of, of ease. And nobody's done it. In fact, they've stepped further the other way. Bullard's going to be a voting member. Bullard do, Bullard's doing what Bullard does. Bullard now is talking about the balance sheet. And the minutes came out. And you know what? They're talking about the balance sheet. So they've gone from negative 60 to 200 miles an hour in what seems like the, the blink of an eye. They've had chances to walk it back. Nobody's walked it back. I wouldn't expect Powell to walk it back. However, Rob Seachin, Tom Lee today, your buddy, he says the Nasdaq's oversold. He said it's so oversold that it might be bottoming versus the S&P 500. He says the underperformance of the Qs has been so sustained and sizable that we could be nearing a turning point, one where the sellers are done selling. This is what we are watching this week. What are you watching this week? Uh, I would tell you as much as, as, I, as much as I love our man, Tom, I think he's a little early on this. I think he'll ultimately be right. I think it depends on where you ultimately want to be within the NASDAQ. Um, I would also say to Steve, he's not the only one that can... In short, on this show, he's the only one that's brave enough, I think, to talk about it, given what happened last year. But we, we were also short throughout the year some of these high valuation names. And if you look at what we came into the year with, we came into the year with a consensus that expected a 10 percent correction sometime in the first quarter or first half. We thought that it was going to come earlier than most expected. And it was going to become earlier because the Fed was behind the curve from an inflation standpoint. It was going to force their hand. It was going to create volatility. And it was going to create a massive move in Treasuries, all of which we have seen. I think as for more to go, it's too early to catch a falling knife until started the, as some of these these high risk names, these highly leveraged names stabilize. And I'm not just talking about stocks, I'm talking about cryptocurrencies as well. So if you see some stabilization there, I think Tom's gonna be right. But let's look out intermediate term and what's gonna save 
the market in what is going to act as an airbag underneath all this. The first thing that's going to act as an airbag is even if rates go up, given where inflation is, we're still going to have negative real rates, which is going to force people into risk markets. Okay, so that's that's number one that I think is going to be uh, an incredible stabilizer. And then number two, we're going to have a ridiculously strong economic growth. And that is one of the reasons why as rates move up, as economic growth is great and economic activity accelerates, energy prices get a lift. And so we've done two things. We've hidden out in financials because of the rising rate aspect of it. And we've hidden out in energy. We still own the quality tech, sadly, but our investors have such huge gains in some of these high quality, reasonably priced technology names that we still think are going to be secular beneficiaries. And so I think there are things to do. I think the volatility is going to give us an opportunity to have some activity, but I'd steer away from the really risky stuff and focus on fundamentals and stock selection. I'm trying to think of, Joe, you know, just not even thinking about thinking about thing from the Fed. And I think that was in the summer. So you can't go from... We're not even thinking about thinking about thinking about thinking about to the market thinking you're doing four rate hikes unless you got policy wrong. That's what I mean about the policy mistake. Maybe it already happened in in part one. How do you go in that period of time from not even thinking about thinking about thinking about to four the market predicting four interest rate hikes now? And you wonder why the 10 years going up 30 bips in six days. So I I make a comment. I I read something. Sorry, Joe, I just wanted to make one comment on that. The Fed's data dependent. I mean, the data didn't indicate that early. And let me tell you, them setting the table for what they're about to do, which is rein in policy, which is absolutely no, the, the right thing. The data absolutely. was the data. The, the, no, no, the data was the data. What do, you, what do you mean? The data was the data. They thought it was transitory on inflation. It turned out to be not true. The data was there, the same yeah. data. They just misread it. Rob? Early on, I think a lot of people thought it was going to be transitory, Scott. I think what ended up happening. Yeah, but a lot of people aren't in charge of. A lot of people aren't in charge of interest rates. A lot of people aren't in charge of interest rates. The Fed's in charge of interest rates. Totally get it. But we should allow the Fed to have an ability to pivot policy if it's responsible. Totally get it. They misread it. You should be allowed to pivot. And they pivoted responsibly. Yeah, well, yeah, they did. And the speed in which they're pivoting has spooked the stock market, I think, in part. Exactly. So, so absolutely. So, you know, it's interesting, Scott, because I read over the weekend that there's actually a report that there's going to be six hikes, not four. So we're kind of we're just raising the bar on all this. But look, I listened last week and Josh mentioned the wealth effect. Uh, I've been talking and studying this since the great financial crisis. Some of the chairman Bernanke talked about at the time. And, and you just wonder, at a certain point, does the chairman and the Federal Reserve react and respond to what they're seeing in the market? Because I do believe, I do believe the wealth effect is so incredibly important to them. So you could say that I'm holding out hope, and, and potentially I am. But what I'm trying to do here is come up with a playbook and a plan, because I think people are trapped. I think people are trapped longer risk, longer risk, and they're trapped in high beta, lower quality holdings, and they need to get out. 
I don't think this is about catching a falling knife at all. I don't think anyone's looking at the market saying, let's get the absolute bottom. I think it the other way. It's where do we get the opportunity to potentially take off risk? And the suspicion I have is that if the Federal Reserve is still prioritizing the wealth effect, you potentially can get from Chairman Powell something that comforts the markets and gives you a chance to get off the risk. And on the other side of that, you've got earnings. We'll and again, there's your opportunity. We'll see. Obviously, hey, Scott, obviously can, can longer duration make- assets, as Joe, as Joe has referred to them in the past, growth is feeling at risk because of what's happening with the change in, in rates. Go, go ahead, Weiss. Yeah, there, there are two points to make. Number one, we talk about the wealth effect, and Josh talked about 29% of households, are, you know, record levels are in the market. But it's time, and the Fed is doing it, they're focusing on the 71% who are seeing their grocery bills double, who are seeing they can't buy goods because demand is so great that shelves are bare, the supply chain. Which brings me to an issue that I'm grappling with, and I think the market really has to grapple with it. At what level will rates be that will really hit demand? It's not going to cure the supply chain unless demand comes really down. And from who I talk to, there's been minimal, minimal advances in loosening the supply chain. So at what level will rates be that will push people back into the workforce? You can go into a small restaurant. You can go to a large department store. You can go to a corporation. They can't find people. How will raising rates change that? So that's the real quagmire the Fed's in, and that's why I'm not so positive on the market as Tom Lee or others, because I don't see the answer to those questions. This is not a normal time that we're seeing for inflation. It's not driven solely by demand. It's driven by labor shortages, and it's driven by good shortages from supply chain issues. So how do you fix that? Well, as an investor, you know, Jim, I'm trying to think of if you're if they're is going to be money that continues to come out of the tech trade. Does it continue to go into the value and cyclical areas of the market? Financials have done well. Energy has done well. By the way, the banks kick off earnings later this week. Lori Calvacina at RBC says the value trade's not done yet. Um, there's more talk today that from, from others that it could have staying power too. Ed Yardeni, his name was escaping me, but he had a note just before we came out uh, on the air today, that maybe this is finally the year where value has its day in the sun. Is that where we need to be positioned yeah. for the months ahead? Yes, and I think there's very simple reasons why. Those are the areas where you're going to see above average earnings growth, and those are the areas where you're going to see cash flows that are high enough to support dividends, dividend increases, and meaningful share buybacks. By that, I'm talking about the financials, the energies, the industrials, which are also going to benefit from things like infrastructure spending. And Scott, I, you know, I was listening to everybody just now, and I was listening to Joe say, hey, you know, investors are trapped, and Weiss sounds his normally angry self. Um, I, I think we got to step back for a second and point out one really important thing, okay? One really important thing. Jobs are plentiful, 
I, I'll, let, I'll let the laugh get out. I'm not sure if it's because of a delay, but jobs are plentiful, okay? So I am, yes, talking about a correction. I'm not talking about a recession. I'm not talking about a bear market. This is a correction that's going to happen. It normally happens every year. But when you have jobs as plentiful as they are now, it's just really hard to conjure up an image of a recession and a bear market. So let's not freak out, all right? I'm being a little cute, maybe even too cute. I've raised 10% cash. That means I'm 90% invested. Invested. I'm not looking for a bear market. I understand. All right, Bryn, you get the last word for this segment. Listen, the Fed and monetary and fiscal policy are a huge driver of why we have inflation. The amount of unemployment insurance, the stimulus checks, uh, the child care direct payments, taking the balance sheet from $3.8 trillion to over $8 trillion, um, that is what is a huge driver of inflation. And I think the Fed is like, holy moly, we have to try to bring this back. And so I think until we get the Fed actually coming out and giving us a plan about what they're actually going to do versus what they're talking about doing, I think there's going to be an incredible amount of chop in the market. And you absolutely want to have some value, lower multiple, high cash flow pieces in your portfolio. All right. We are going to take that quick break. Up next, don't miss a first on CNBC interview with the CEO of Bristol Myers. I know Farmer Jim's paying close attention to that today because he owns the stock. Shares of Biopharma, they're higher despite the sell-off and surging 14% in a month. Rob Seachin has his stock summit picks. We're going to hear from Pete Nigerian on what's taking place with volatility. we got a lot more ahead. We're back in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. JP Morgan's healthcare conference is underway as we speak. Meg Terrell joining us now with a first on CNBC interview with the CEO of Bristol Myers. Meg, I send it over to you. And as I mentioned, we have a shareholder on the panel today, so he will be listening intently. All right, Scott, thank you so much. Dr. Giovanni Caforio joins us now uh, from the virtual JP Morgan Healthcare Summit. Uh, Giovanni, thanks for being with us. You know, one of the things you said this morning that I think made a lot of folks in the biotech industry's ears perk up was that uh, business development is a top priority for you guys, even as you announced that $5 billion buyback for the first quarter. What should we expect from Bristol Myers in terms of uh, business development this year? Well, Meg, thanks for having me, first of all, uh, at a very important time. Uh, our innovation strategy is really very unique. It's based on combining the strength of our internal R&D 
with sourcing external innovation. That what, that's what makes business development the core pillar of our capital allocation strategy. And uh, we've done a, a number of deals over the last 18 to 24 months that are very representative of the type of focus we have in therapeutic areas that we know well, transformative science, and assets that we can bring into the company to advance their development to patients. And these uh, tend to be early science deals, uh, like the one we announced today with Century, and in some cases, mid-sized bolt-ons, like the acquisition of myocardia through which we acquired Mavacampton, a really important cardiovascular medicine. So going forward, I expect we'll continue to be very active in business development and continue to complement what's uh, one of the best pipelines in the industry by accessing what's happening outside. What do you make of where the valuations in the biotech space are right now? I think a lot of folks in the industry feeling a bit beaten down after last year. Does that make some of these targets potentially more attractive to you? Well, valuations remain high, although, as you mentioned, the, in some cases, they're coming down. I think what's important to us is that we focus on areas of science where our scientists really know the field very well. We have deep expertise. In many cases, we follow companies for a long period of time. And so when we see that data has matured and we have an opportunity to reach an agreement at a value that makes sense for us and generates value for our shareholders, we are ready to move. So we're watching, obviously, the biotech space very closely. And of course, Bristol-Myers, as you pointed out today in your presentation, and analysts have noted, has one of the deepest patent cliffs in the industry coming up in the second half of this decade. But you gave long-term guidance today and guidance for the year, and your stock is up today. Um, what do you see replacing um, that loss of revenue from some of these major medicines? Well, it's a really important time for us, and I'm really confident that we'll be able to grow the company and accelerate the renewal of our portfolio. I'll start with nine new exciting medicines that we're launching in a short period of time. That's really unprecedented. We've already launched six medicines in the last two years. And this year we are expecting potentially three approvals for really important products. So this is a, a tremendous opportunity that we have. We see those nine products generating sales of 10 to $13 billion by 2025 and having total peak sales potential above 25 billion by 2029. I think what's important though, is that we are more broadly advancing the rest of our pipeline. The pipeline has doubled. We have more than 50 assets in clinical development uh, and uh, we have seven medicines that are advancing through mid and late stage development. So I feel really good about our ability to grow the company through this period in which we have losses of exclusivity, but we have an accelerated opportunity to renew our portfolio. Another interesting point you made is that because you're in this position of potentially launching these new medicines, you're in a perhaps better spot than some other companies if we see some drug pricing reform, that you can perhaps be more nimble um, when it comes to uh, that area. Can you just tell us about that dynamic and what you're expecting from Washington? Well, first of all, our portfolio is diversifying and uh, we'll have one of the youngest uh, portfolios in the industry when our transition continues to advance. That makes our business very resilient. So the situation obviously in Washington is very fluid. At the same time, what I wanna say is that 
I am really supportive of the right to reforms, ones that make medicines more affordable for patients. At the same time, though, we must make sure that we continue to have an environment that is supportive of investing in innovation. That's particularly important for a company like Bristol Myers Squibb that invests in innovation, and we're all about growth uh, through transformative medicines. All right, Dr. Giovanni Caforio, we appreciate you being with us today. We hope to get to see you again soon. Thank you, Meg. Scott, Thanks for the opportunity. Back. All right, Meg. I appreciate it very much. That's Meg Terrell. All right, Jim Labenthal, you're the man who owns BMY. What do you make of uh, what the stock's doing yeah, today? Really? Uh, you know, biotech healthcare is off to a bad start this year. Yeah, and you know what? It's a little bit of a continuation of a trend. Now, Bristol-Myers has climbed back from an abyss that it was in uh, late in the fall. I think it's going to continue. I I think what's going to happen with pharma and Bristol-Myers in particular is that there's an ongoing relief rally that the Build Back Better bill did not pass. And I heard Meg's question uh, to Mr. Cafario about, you know, whether he would like to see that uh, solidified, what the drug pricing rules are. I think investors like me are hopeful that the Build Back Better bill does not include drug pricing controls, because if it doesn't, then this sector is wildly undervalued. And Bristol-Myers at eight times earnings, three and a half percent dividend yield is a key, key case in point. You are last thing here. You're supposed to buy these companies when people feel the pipeline is empty. He just told you it's filling rapidly. This is a time to buy Bristol-Myers. OK, uh, Joe, United Health was one of your stock summit stock stock summit picks. He tried to say. And AbbVie, you own. I do. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, United Health has not performed well year to date. And healthcare itself is struggling. But I still believe overall the, the sector has the exact characteristics for what is going to be needed in 2022. And it speaks to a lot of what Jimmy's talking about. Valuation perspective is incredibly compelling if you're not going to have any type of legislation from Build Back Better that would be restrictive. The amount of free cash flow generation that a lot of these companies uh, are producing is is really going to be, again, fundamentally what an investor is going to have to align themselves with in the environment of 22. All right. We mentioned uh, that J.P. Morgan's healthcare conference is going on as we speak. Uh, Do not miss Jamie Dimon. He is the CEO, of course, of J.P. Morgan. He'll be on the exchange today, 1.30 Eastern. It is a first on CNBC interview. I couldn't think of a better time to hear his voice uh, in this tumultuous market time for sure. Let's get the headlines now with Rahel Solomon. Hi, Rahel. Hi, Scott. And here's what's happening at this hour. We begin with U.S. and Russian diplomats wrapping up seven hours of security talks as 100,000 Russian troops remain near the Ukrainian border. Russia's deputy foreign minister said that the meetings were professional, but that the two countries have opposite views of what should be done and that compromise is needed. The U.S. Deputy Secretary of State says that it is unclear whether Russia wants to de-escalate tensions along the border with Ukraine. And on the news tonight, the chances for a deal between the U.S. and Russia and what may change at talks later this week. That's tonight at 7 Eastern. The Internal Revenue Service course, known as the IRS, says that tax season will begin two weeks from today. The filing deadline for tax returns will be April 18th, and there are no plans to push that date back. However, IRS officials are also warning of a, quote, frustrating filing season. Treasury officials are slamming Republicans 
for blocking what they say is needed funding increases. And in Los Angeles, an amazing rescue caught on camera. Some quick thinking and brave police officers rushing to a plane that crashed on train tracks there. They were going to pull the pilot from the wreck just seconds before a train slammed into it. You're now up to date. More halftime report after this. You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft and performance with Acura's all electric ZDX with a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313 mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. And welcome to the ETF Edge portion of Halftime Report. I'm Bob Pisani. We start off 2022 with Bitcoin futures ETFs in a slump down 40% from their recent highs in November, down 9% for the year so far. What will happen in 2022? Let's talk with Rick Edelman. He's the founder of the nation's largest financial planning firm, now the founder of the Digital Assets Council of Financial Professionals. He's author of a new book, Out Shortly, The Truth About Crypto. Rick, in your 2022 predictions, you say one-third of American adults will own Bitcoin by the end of 2022. What's going to cause that kind of mass adoption given the declines we've seen in the beginning of the year? Well, we're already at a quarter uh, of that number, uh, Bob. So we've got 24% of Americans already owning Bitcoin. It won't be that much of a stretch to see us get to a third. And it's because Bitcoin is becoming more and more mainstream. People are hearing about it everywhere. It isn't going away. We're seeing governments, corporations, foundations, pension funds, all investing with major institutional involvement. And this is going to encourage a lot of investors to pay attention to their investment advisors who are also increasingly getting involved. This is going to become as common in the next couple of years as any other uh, portion of a portfolio. You know, you are uh, bucking the trend uh, of almost everyone in the ETF business uh, on Bitcoin. You say that the SEC is going to approve a Bitcoin ETF in 2022. Most of the industry say that you will, they will not approve it. You're a decisive minority on this one, Rick. Why do you think there will be a Bitcoin ETF in 2022? What will change the SEC's mind, considering they've turned down every application for a Bitcoin ETF so far? Well, it's, it's a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek. I've been making that prediction every year for seven years. One day I'm going to be right. And the reason that I'm, hom- uh, that I'm hopeful that it's going to occur, if not in 22, then in 2023, is because the SEC is running out of excuses to say no. A lot of the concerns they have have been resolved by the industry through their own maturity and innovation and development. And I'm confident that we're going to see the SEC say yes, because there's really no legitimate reason for them not to. We need the SEC to say yes for consumer protection, because without an ETF, consumers are going elsewhere, often getting involved in frauds and other schemes because they can't get the product via a financial advisor. The SEC is going to say yes because they're going to realize this is a step toward consumer protection. 
Yeah, and Gensler says he needs a lot more control, regulatory control over the crypto space before he's really going to act on that. Now, we're going to talk about that much more on crypto in 2022 with Rick, including his call on what other countries might adopt Bitcoin as legal tender in 2022. That's coming up on ETF Edge, 1 p.m. Eastern time. Rick will be joined by Matt Hogan. He's the CIO of Bitwise Asset Management, one of the great ETF experts in the country. He runs the Bitwise 10 Crypto Index Fund. That's ETF Edge, CNBC.com. Halftime back right after this. You can add another voice to the buy the dip camp. A new note just out from J.P. Morgan's chief global market strategist, Marco Kalanovic, out moments ago. And he says, and I quote, near term, we recommend buying the dip on U.S. indices given oversold conditions. He goes on to say the pullback in risk assets in reaction to the Fed minutes is arguably overdone. Policy tightening is likely to be gradual and at a pace that risk assets should be able to handle and is uh, occurring in an environment of strong cyclical recovery. Uh, Bryn, so that's the word from Kalanovic. Higher bond yields should not be disruptive for equities. That's his headline. Is he right? Uh, Yeah, higher bond yields off the base rate shouldn't be disruptive. But when the Fed out of nowhere in the minutes that all of a sudden they're going to reduce the balance sheet much quicker than markets were expecting, that's not a great environment for risk assets. I do think, though, the question I would have for Marco is what indices is he talking about? Because I don't think the S&P is that oversold. I think the NASDAQ, to Tom Lee's point, to Joe's point, uh, the NASDAQ is definitely oversold, touching its its 100-day moving average. So, I mean, as a trader, I think you could take the collective commentary of those three folks and say, yeah, I'm going to nibble on some tech. But I do agree with Joe, though, that I think we may have more of a sell the rip market going forward than a buy the dip that we've traditionally seen the last the last two years. Mm, Steve Weiss, uh, that's an interesting thought that, that Bryn puts forth. Right. I know a lot of people are talking about that, um, that, that, it, that it could be that phenomenon for a while of, of, of sell the rip instead of buy the dip. Yeah, it seems like that's what the market's been doing over the last uh, week or so. But I'll tell you, Scott, right before we came on air, and to go tell the producers, and it's a little lower from where I bought it, but I bought some Facebook. Uh, Facebook was down more today. It was down, I think, another 10 points at one point. And I bought it down about $10.50 just because it gets overdone. So I think you can trade this market. I think you got to use tight stops. There are places to make money. And I'm not saying the market won't be higher a year from now, even six months. In fact, I think it will be. Mm-hmm. But as I've always said, it's your point of entry. And right now, my exposure is dictated by my shorts, my index shorts and other shorts. It's not dictated by having sold out of my core positions. I still have those. So that allows me to protect myself and be patient in terms of when I want to get in. Yeah. So, Rob Seachin, I noticed, and your stock summit picks are coming up in just a little bit, so don't give me those now, but you are buying more uh, AutoZone. You want to tell our viewers why you decided to buy more of that stock in the current environment that we are in? Yeah, sure. We, we've owned it. It's not like it's new. Uh, you know, uh, there's an aging automotive industry. The average car on the road is now 12 years old. They're fundamentally seeing tons of momentum. Uh Sales are growing at 15% a year-on-year. Year. Earnings growing at 18. 
percent. But the most important thing is they've been able to pass on inflationary pressures to their uh, to their consumers. So it's 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 a very fundamentally sound story. We think the consumer is still in incredibly uh, great shape despite what's happening in the stock market. There's been an enormous wealth effect as it relates to housing. And so uh, we do think this is a good place to, uh, to be in the consumer space. All right, so let's do this. We'll take a quick break. And when we come back, Rob is going to give his top picks for 2022. The last member of the committee to give his stock summit picks. We'll do it next. All right, Rob Seachin, you're up for our stock summit. I'm going to go through your picks here. We'll do them one by one. Uh, the Regeneron is number one. Tell us why. Yeah, so first off, we, we like healthcare this year, uh, initiating multi-year theme, convergence of biotech and technology. Valuation is attractive across the, across the sector. And we'd like to take advantage of uh, dramatic drug discoveries and, and possible MNA. Regeneron is, is a cheap stock, 10 times next year's earnings, eight times EBITDA, 10% free cash flow yield. Um, so it scores very well from a quantitative standpoint. And while its therapeutic has seen mixed results, uh, it's really not a COVID play. This is a company that's very innovative in the space, so we like it. J.P. Morgan, you do have a financial, and it is J.P.M. I think everybody has J.P.M., and it, it's probably uh, the, the quintessential uh, global economic play in, in, in financials. Our view is that rates are headed higher. We think they're an incredible uh, beneficiary of that. We also think that later in the cycle, when companies are, have fundamentally strong balance sheets, you're going to see a lot, of, uh, a lot of loan growth. Obviously, they're a significant participant in, in, in the capital markets. And so we think that's a stock that you can own, and it'll benefit from this rotational trade into the cyclicals in value. And we've owned it for a long time, too. Uh, a lot of people on the committee picked energy, uh, some energy names for their picks, and you do as well. EOG is the one you like. Why? Yeah. Uh, it's shale producer, produces a combination of attractive valuations, nine times next year's earnings, 10% free cash flow yield, 20% dividend growth, um, stands out for disciplined CapEx, low debt levels, um, good returns on invested capital, and with their low cost margins and uh, low cost and margins expansion likely we think it's a great place to be and as it relates to a sector we, we like energy yeah sorry go ahead Scott. yeah energy specifically that's okay specifically the xop yeah the reason we like uh, like xop is it's uh, you know it's enp you get a little more beta with it so if you believe that energy prices are going to be higher than markets expect, we certainly think they do. Uh, structurally, there's been underinvestment in the infrastructure, even with uh, decarbonization. And there's uh, uh, resilient demand from accelerating economic growth. And so we think energy is going to be the best performer this year. Honestly, it was a jump ball between energy and financials. But you know, we've been burned long enough on financials uh, with rates being persistently low. Mm-hmm. Bryn, give me a, a quick uh, take on these. Yeah, I think he's got something for everybody there. I like I like the EOG play. I've talked about energy a bunch. 
I think within within financials, I think as, as Tom Lee would say, J.P. Morgan's a nice granny shot, and then you know the Regeneron is is a good way to play on the secular you know secular growth in biotech and healthcare. So I think it's a nice basket of picks. All right, good stuff. We'll take our final break and come back with final trades next. Let's get you caught up uh, on the markets at this very moment. Before we leave you for the day, uh, we have breached some significant technical levels almost all the way across the board today. Interest rates remain a serious question mark. 180 was the high on the 10-year. Remember, that takes you back to the pre-COVID levels of January of 2020. That continues to spook technology investors. There's the NASDAQ down 2% even right now, still under 15K, 14,636. You've seen the ARC complex come under more selling pressure today. Uh, so many different areas of the market are seeing widespread selling. S&P now off one and a half percent. Let's do final trades. Joe, you go first. Well, as I continue to kind of get stopped out of a high beta trades, I'm looking for opportunities and quality names. Merck, I took a position in it on Friday, Scott. Six percent free cash flow yield. Very cheap valuation. The growth po- portfolio is under undervalued. This stock is going a lot higher. Rob Seachin. Intel. Uh, we like the semi space right now, and we see demand continuing to expand while supply remains tight across nearly every end market. Makes me want to go to Farmer Jim after you pick Intel. Jimmy? <laughs> <laughs> we talk. Look at all. God, I got to shed that. Um, look at all these value plays everybody's Never. coming up with. All right, I'll, I'll go with that game. I'll go with that game. AbbVie for today. Same reasons I said with Bristol-Myers. Mm. Just look at the valuation and pharma's coming back right now. Plus, if you're you know a little bit negative on the markets like I am, this is a good place to hide out. All right. Okay. Weiss? I'm smiling now because Jim's done talking. Facebook, I think it's a good trade right here. <laughs> okay. And finally, Bryn. Goldman Sachs. They've got Marcus. They've got Apple Credit Card, private equity, um, investment banking, and trading. Great company. All right. And uh, great to be with you guys today. Thanks so much for watching as well. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.